Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be a servant for man's need of salvation and the three animals in the Bible that God used to depict the Lord's sacrifice to us. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org or download it for free on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Friendship with God radio program. If you're enjoying this Bible teaching radio program and Jewish evangelism outreach ministry, we'd like to encourage you to support it by going to friendshipwithgod.org and donating online. That's friendshipwithgod.org. That'll help us to continue this program on this station in your city. You can also call us now or after the program at 1-800-247-3051. Here's Tom Cantor as we study the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. In our front yard, we have dirt. It's not very interesting. But anyway, we have dirt. Why do we have dirt? Because Cheryl can't decide what ground cover she wants. How long has she been trying to decide? Three years. And so nothing's in there, and it's just dirt. And I'm telling you, that ground is a magnet for every weed in the universe. And it takes so much time to keep the weeds out of that dirt. I mean, I keep telling her, but she doesn't agree. Plant something, but anyway. Because something keeps the weeds out. Now, we can imagine Abraham. He's like a plot of ground. And God is a gardener. So verse 1, God comes in verse 1, and he just he plants a seed. He plants a seed. He plants two seeds. Two seeds of promise in Abraham. The first seed, Abraham, God's going to be your shield. And then he plants, he covers that up, and he waits. He waits to see what's going to happen with that seed of promise. And then the second seed of promise, he comes along, he clears the ground out, plants the second. Abraham, God's going to be your exceeding great reward. And then he covers that up. And he waits to see what's going to happen. And then he goes on in verse 4, and God plants in Abraham a a third seed, a third seed of promise. Abraham, you're going to have a physical heir. It's going to come from your own body. Sarah, and he covers that up. And he waits to see what's going to happen. And then one more time in verse 5, God comes along and he plants a fourth seed. Abraham, you're going to have a spiritual seed that's going to be like the stars of the sky. And he covers that up, waits to see what's going to happen. And what happens? Verse 6 is what happens. To all those seed of promise that God has put there, Abraham now believes. And what does he believe? He believes in the gardener. He believes in the person who planted those seeds of promise. And as Abraham occupies his mind with the thoughts of God and his ability to do what he had promised, then Abraham's belief in God is like a growing plant. And the growing plant germinates more and more. And Abraham's belief in God was like a growing plant that spreads its roots more and more. And Abraham's belief was like a growing plant that spread its branches more and more. And as that growing plant took up the plot of ground, unlike our front yard, that growing plant displaced in Abraham all the weeds of doubt. And Abraham has peace from his doubts as the growing plant takes up more. And as Abraham, as that growing plant then grows and takes up more of the plot in Abraham's heart, unlike our front yard, that growing plant displaces all the weeds of worry in Abraham over what his, who his heir is going to be. And he has peace from that. And the growing plant takes up more of the plot. Unlike our front yard, it displaces all the weeds of Abraham's worries about his wealth. And he has peace over that. All that happens to Abraham because he believes God who has given him these four promises And he believes that God's able to do it. And then it says, not only does he have the benefit of being free from the worries and the peace that he's got, it's wonderful. Like my friend, I have an atheist friend, I have several atheist friends, 
And one of my atheist friends, you know, we talk about it's tough to be an atheist, but you should have compassion on atheists. We should have a society, compassion for atheists. It's not easy to be an atheist. It's not. It's not. And he has this, in life, he has this great peace. He's free from worries. But those aren't the only benefits that come to Abraham because what it says here in verse 6, God counts it to him for righteousness. The word count literally means he reckons it. He puts it on his account. He writes there, righteousness, because he's leaning on God. And those two words are kind of unusual bedfellows there. They don't look like they're related to each other. Believed and righteousness. You know, we don't match up believed and righteousness. We don't think that way. I mean, when, we, when a person believes, we don't think righteous. When a person believes, we think faithful, but not righteous. What's the word we put with, with righteous? Obeyed. Obeyed goes with righteous. Oh, he obeyed. That's righteous. That's the right match up there. But this verse introduces something totally different. Why? It's a new righteousness. It's a brand new righteousness, which now we can see, oh, there are two kinds of righteousness. The first righteousness, which is from the law, comes from obedience, obeying. That's a righteousness that God guarantees to those who deserve it. The second righteousness, which is from faith, that's a righteousness that God promises to those who do not deserve it. And so the first righteousness to the deserving is called the righteousness of the law. The second righteousness that's altogether new for us is that God guarantees to the undeserving, that's called the righteousness of faith. And those are the terms that are used in Philippians 3, 9 when Paul says his goal in life is, is I don't want, he says, I don't want to be found in him. I want to be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's the righteousness by faith, Philippians 3, 9. So we've seen how the statement, he counted it to him for righteousness, shows us that before, Abraham didn't have any righteousness. He didn't have any righteousness in himself. He was a sinner, like us. The only righteousness that Abraham had was the one that he had from God. And that's why in Romans 5.17, Paul calls this the gift of righteousness. And so we look at verse 6 and we ask the question, why is this the first time that it says he believed God and he counted him for righteousness. Okay, here's a question. Would you say that this was the first time that Abraham believed God? What do you think? No, clearly not. So what other time did Abraham believe God? Hebrews 11:8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out unto a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. See? That goes us back to where we were in Genesis 12. Abraham heard God say, get out, get thee out, go, go. And it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, he, he left. So that was by faith. Well, why does it say there that Abraham believed God and was counted for righteousness? Because he believed God. But the difference was because here in Genesis 15, it was in a specific promise that Abraham was given, that he believed. Genesis 12, God had promised the land, and it does not say that God imputed righteousness to Abraham because he believed that God was going to give him the land. But here in in, uh, Genesis 15 was not the promise of the land. This was a very special promise. And this promise all comes down to one word, and that word is the word seed. So shall thy seed be. And so God did not use the word seeds as in plural, but seed as in one person. That's the point that's explained to us in uh, Galatians 3.16, where it says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. 
he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So in other words, by using the singular word seed, it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this passage in Galatians 3, just to be fair, is referring to Genesis 22. But it also, in that portion, speaks of thy seed as the stars of heaven. So what's God saying in Genesis 15.5? Abraham, you see all those stars up there? That's your seed. And there are many believers, but they're all together as one. They're all together as one. They're one body. My body, the Lord Jesus Christ. His church, his body. So as one of Abraham's descendants, the Lord Jesus Christ would also come. As one of his physical descendants, the Lord Jesus Christ would come, and then he would unite all the spiritual seed together in himself. And that's why the word thy seed is so important in Genesis 15.5, because it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because Abraham believed the promise about the Lord Jesus Christ, his faith was counted to him for righteousness. And that's true of every person. A person is not counted as righteous for believing any promise of God. A person is not counted as righteous because he believes God is not going to destroy the earth again with water. That was a promise. No, he's counted as righteous because he believes the promise about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's wonderful what God counts as righteousness. We take our place alongside undeserving Abraham with no righteousness in ourselves. We take our place alongside of undeserving Abraham who called on God to forgive him for his sins. We take our place next to undeserving Abraham who believed God's promise to save him through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And along with undeserving Abraham, we've put out our hand. We take also the gift of righteousness. Now, what we see here is that he says now in verse 7, I brought thee out to give thee. So here he goes on and he explains more that he has brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of the land of idolatry. And then Abraham does something very human, which we really love about this chapter. He says, whereby shall I know? Now again, it's very human. You know, He says, whereby shall I know I'm going to inherit this? Because God has again mentioned the land to him. And so he's asking God to help him. He's not complaining. He's not complaining. He's just being honest. He's saying, Lord, help me. It's just like that father of the sick child in Mark 9.24 where it says that he said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. This is what Abraham's doing. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, he's, I'm a stranger in a strange land here. It wasn't wrong what Abraham was doing. He was just being honest. I mean, after all, we think of John the Baptist, the great John the Baptist, who makes the proclamation in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And so what happens to him? He gets into prison. It's a dark time in his life. He has a time of doubt. He sends messengers in Matthew 11, 2 through 5. John had heard of prison, the works of Christ. He sent two of his disciples, and he said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again. Notice that word. Again. Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight and so forth. So John's in the darkness, and Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not reply to John. John, what's the matter with you? You prepared Israel for my coming. You baptized me. You proclaimed that I was the Lamb of God. Get a grip, John. He didn't do that. He patiently helped John out of his darkness, and and he says, just, okay, let's tell him again what you heard, what you saw. Just remind him. Very gentle, very understanding. Sometimes you and I go through these personal dark times of doubt, and that's the time when we take our place next to John the Baptist and say, art thou he? That's the time we take our place next to Abraham and say, whereby shall I know? 
God gave Abraham then an answer. Very interesting reassurance. He's going to fulfill the promise to give Abraham the land. First of all, he told Abraham, go get a heifer, a doe, a ram, all three years old. These, the animals, speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three large animals are all domesticated. They're not wild animals. They were tamed animals. They didn't need to be captured from the wild. The three animals were all part of Abraham's flock. They came to Abraham. I still remember in the 70s, I have these memories. Anyway, (laughs) when after working with our goats to bleed them for antibodies, how they became tamed. And it just amazed me how they became tamed. And I I remember how after they became tamed, they would let me lead them to the squeeze chute to bleed them every two weeks, which is what we do. And at the bleed chute, we lift up their heads, secure their heads to get access to their jugular vein. And I still remember the first time one of our goats, it was quiche Lorraine, if you want to know, Anyway, the first time one of our goats got into the squeeze chute, she lifted up her head. It just amazed me. I was so overwhelmed. I could have kissed her, but then Cheryl would have been jealous. So, <laughs> and today, our goats willingly come in every two weeks to the squeeze chute, and some of them still do that. They still lift up their heads to expose their jugglers for us, give us access. That taming, that cooperation comes because we work with the goats. These three animals were all part of Abraham's flocks, and they, like our goats, were willing to be led, even though in their case it was to be led to their slaughter. That cooperation and willingness of being led speaks of how the Lord Jesus Christ was a willing servant. As it says of him in Philippians 2, 7, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And it says in Isaiah 53, 7, he's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. And that's why he said in John 10, 17, Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down of myself. So just like our goats that lift its head to be bled, and just like Abraham's heifer and goat and ram, all these animals were willing servants to serve man's needs. And so with the Lord Jesus Christ, he was a willing servant to serve man's need for salvation. And then there were three types of animals that were chosen. The heifer speaks of the freshness of strength. That speaks of how the Lord Jesus Christ was cut off in the midst of his days. He was, as in Isaiah 53, 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living. He was a young man. And next, the goat. The goat was the sin offering. That reminds us of how the priest would put his hand over the head of the goat and confess the sins, and the goat would be now symbolized the sins were upon him as he was sacrificed. That reminds us how the Lord Jesus Christ became sin for us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And then the ram speaks of consecration. The ram with the shoulders would be waved before the Lord as a symbol of consecration. That speaks of wholehearted consecration, his wholehearted consecration to God. And so I think, I'm sorry, but we'll have to stop here because time's run out on us, but we'll continue with this next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our perfect sacrifice. Thank you that we can see him in the scriptures, and having seen him, Lord, our hearts burn within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, today you taught us how Abraham asked God the Father, Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Speaking of the inheritance of the land for Abraham... But really, Abraham was asking God the Father to help him believe God by faith versus just asking for an inheritance. It made me think of many parents today who say the most important gift that they can give their children is a house or future inheritance. Or other parents that say the most important gift they can give their children is their friendship and time invested in their development. 
Yet others say that the most important gift they can give their children is their family name and what it means and family values. And finally, others say that the most important gift that they can give their children is what they were not given as a child, such as a good education, a good chance at life, or maybe a good career and money. But I've heard you say that the most important gift that parents can give their children is to lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So can you explain to our listeners what the most important gift is that parents can give their children? Yes, because all those things that you mentioned, and that is what is commonly viewed today, that the most important thing that I as a parent can hand down to my children is this house that I have poured my life into. And maybe that was a house that you got by inheritance as well. And you would look at the house and you'd say, here it is. I've lived. I'm going to die. And I'm handing to you the fruit of my life, this house, or all these assets that I've worked so hard to collect in my lifetime. I've invested money. That money has paid off. I've done businesses. I've sold those businesses. And now I have this beautiful, fat bank account, and I'm handing it over to you, my children. That's how some people think. Or other people think, look, I don't have a lot of money to hand to you, but what I've done in my lifetime is I've invested in you and my friendship and the time that I've taken to to mentor you, to be there for you. I've created for you wonderful memories of me as your parent. That's my gift to you. Others would say, you were born into a very, very important family. And our family name has been preserved and there's values associated with our family name. This is especially important in Jewish families of the family values of we stand for one another, we protect one another, we stick up for one another, we will never desert each other. Those are the family values and I want you to have those and I've passed these on to you as a gift. And others would say what my father said to me, he he remembers growing up in Petersburg, Virginia, the son of an Orthodox rabbi who established the synagogue in Petersburg, Virginia, Britachim, which is still the only Jewish synagogue in Petersburg, Virginia, established over 100 years ago. But his mother and father were poor. They didn't have a lot of money, especially when he and his brothers all decided that they wanted to go to medical school. And how in the world, as one of them went to Harvard, another one went to University of Virginia, my father went to University of Chicago, were they going to have the money for this? And they had to work and they had to scrape and they had to do whatever they could. And he remembers those days and the hand-me-down clothes and everything that went along. And he used to say to me, I'm going to give you what I never had as a child. Well, you know, I grew up in his house, and which was in Bel Air, which is not exactly the low-income area of Los Angeles. And so I never knew that and never really could associate with what he was talking about. That is until I married my wife that wasn't Jewish and found myself cut off in the family with just $100. Then I understood what, what it meant for have the silver spoon in my mouth all of a sudden turn to aluminum. But that this parents really do believe this, that if they can give to their child what they never had, money, a good career, a good chance at a career, a good education, then that's the most important. Or it could be whatever, fill in the blank. But in reality, 
the most important gift that parents can give to their children is to lead them, is to bring them, is to show them by their lives how to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, how to become a child of the Lord Jesus Christ, a child of God. That's the most important thing that parents can give to their children. Why? And as you, as we've seen, it's so counter to what's currently believed. So it really does demand an explanation. What do you mean that that's the most important, that that's more important than an inheritance of a house and money and the friendship and time that a parent can invest in, which, which is not bad as long as that friendship and time is bringing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you mean it's more important than our family name and our family values? What do you mean that it's more important than a good education, a chance for a good career? What do you mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. It's all explained in Jeremiah, the Jewish prophet Jeremiah, 500 years, over 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. He said this about the Jewish people. In Jeremiah 2.13, he said, God, he's really the mouthpiece for God. He's speaking for God, and he says, For my people have committed two evils. And then he lists them. First, he says, They have forsaken me. Now get how the Lord is described here, his title. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first evil that they committed, that the Jewish people committed. Second, is listed. He says, and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, what he's saying is that the people, his people, the Jewish people, have forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. Who is the him, the fountain of living waters? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. When he stood up and he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. Why was he saying that? Because he is the fountain of living waters. And they have forsaken him. That's what Isaiah 53 says. It says he was despised. He was rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what John 1 says the Jewish people did when they says he came unto his own in John 1 11, and his own received him not. That's all saying the same thing that Jeremiah is saying here. They have forsaken me. And the tragedy is he is not just anyone. He is the fountain of living waters. And they have the second evil. They've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They worked very, very hard. What were they doing working so hard? They were making the money. They were buying the house. They were getting the good career and passing on a good chance for a good education and so forth and everything they were doing. But God said all of those efforts were building broken cisterns that when you turn to those cisterns and you say, I am dying of thirst, I need water to your shock they find that they are they can hold no water they have all that you've invested in them have only been to see the water leak out and not sustain you in the time of need jeremiah further went on in jeremiah 17:13 and he says 
O Lord, the hope of Israel. Think of that as the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of Israel. Tikva Yisrael. All they that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from thee shall be written in the earth. That's the most terrible thing that can happen to a person, to only be written on a tombstone, to only be written in the earth that's going to be destroyed. It says, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. It's so much better to be written in the book of life from Revelation 20:15 that whoever was found written in the book of life was not not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. The term, the fountain of living waters, is really expressing what the Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all those things will be added unto you. Do we need uh, money for food and shelter and, in some cases, a good education and a career? Of course, and God knows we have need of those things if we do. But he says, all those things will be added to you if you seek first the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the fountain of living waters. Seek him first. All of those things will be added to you. That's why the most important thing is a parent can do is lead their children to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor in the Friendship with God radio program today. Now, Tom Cantor's finished his long-awaited Friendship with God Bible, a King James Bible with over 2,200 pages and has over 600 pages of Bible helps and resources. With over 30,000 Bible column inline scripture references, full-color maps and timelines, not to mention an incredible concordance, and hundreds and hundreds of other pages of helps assembled by Tom Cantor, too numerous to name, but to help you study your Bible and help grow your friendship with God. And we're printing a limited supply of these on Finland thin paper printing technology that will be covered in lambskin leather. This is a value of over $250. We're offering it to you below cost. It'll be less than $80. If you want to sign up for the Tom Cantor Friendship with God Commentary and Reference Bible for our limited first-run print release, call us today to be on that list at 1-800-247-3051. You can also call us to donate and support this radio teaching program, 1-800-247-3051 or go to friendshipwithgod.org.